Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Welcome everyone to the Tej Talks podcast. Go and get my books. They're on Amazon. Type in Tej Talks. I've got two of them. The Tej Talks Guide to Property Investing. Over 225 star reviews. Need I say any more? And Behind the Bricks. 43 incredible investors sharing everything with you. Yeah. You know you want to go get it. Amazon. Or click the link in the show notes. On today's podcast, we have a really fun guest actually. This is quite a good podcast. Uh, Phil. Phil is talking about grade listed conversions. Something, you know, a lot of people tend to kind of run from and, you know, they have their pros and cons and they have their timelines and, you know, it's really not easy. It is tricky and it is challenging and has lots of, you know, unique challenges with these old buildings. But we talk through his experience in doing this and we also talk about his really exciting new prop tech called Breeze Move, which should make moving a breeze. Well, I wouldn't be very good in the advert, would I? But yeah, this is a really good podcast. Uh, if you're interested in, you know, scaling up into conversions and, and you like old buildings, you know I'm a sucker for old cottages and buildings and historical buildings, then, you know, this is one for you. Don't forget to leave the podcast to review people. I have the most reviews of any UK property podcast. Yes, the most. Thanks to you. So yeah, please go and leave one. Thank you. Phil, welcome to the Tedge Talks podcast. Hey, Tesh. So I'm looking forward to this because you've won a lot of awards. Now, that's not the, the only reason, but I remember watching a video of one of the recent uh, church conversions you did. I think it was Church Place in Hoylake. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, people go in the show notes, click on um, the Wintermedia website and just have a look at this because it's just incredible. Like the cladding i think you can call it with the brick matching the ch- i mean it just looks beautiful like i've never seen a church conversion that looks like this like you know outside and in even the landscaping it's it, it's simple right we know what we're doing as as developers and investors but it just looks it just looks so good um and i think that sets the tone really for kind of how you and, and how you and your business partner carl how you approach your developments but before we get into property before we talk about grade listed buildings and historic buildings that's something that you you niche into and your pipeline is eight million um last time i, I checked what were you doing before property because i understand you've got various business experience yeah so um i started in business at 16 um importing uh clothing from china um and then i bought my first property at the age of 20 um and i went to purchase mirrored bedside tables this is probably the most scouse thing you'll ever hear this <laughs> um so <laughs> it's a fair it's just mirrored furniture um and end up paying an arm and a leg for them um and i thought to myself you know what I can probably get these myself from my contacts in China. So I found the contact, um, started importing mirrored furniture, um, one at a time, then 10 at a time, then containers at a time and built that business to the biggest supplier in the UK. Um, then I actually uh, had a career in Kellogg's as well alongside that. Um, so got some corporate experience under my belt. Um, then it got to a stage where the, uh, furniture business was uh, doing really well. So I decided to set up a physical shop. So I left the corporate world and went into a shop uh, head first. I'd never even opened a till. So the first transaction that came in, I didn't even know I was open my own till. Um, so yeah, just went head first with that. Um, and then from there, I set up my own furniture brand. Um, so from there, we took that all over the world, um, Dubai, everywhere. Um, so that was quite a successful uh, furniture brand. Then I had my own interior design company, uh, then it went to electronics. Then I went into hospitality, uh, where we settled the property business. So I had a restaurant during the evening and the property business during the day, um, which was quite a challenging experience but you know we uh, we learned these things but yeah so quite a, a vast uh, background and different uh, different businesses really and you know you started quite young in sort of the world of having your own business what you know was there something or someone that inspired you and showed you that this could be possible 
Yeah, Dad's been quite a big role model for me. He he came from um, a family of of eight brothers and sisters, and the two up, two down, and then typical Liverpool street. And he's been really successful. So he's always been my main inspiration, and you know he's always taught me that I can do pretty much whatever I want if I put my mind to it. Um, so when I was a kid, I used to sit there with yellow pages, going through all the different businesses and thinking, what should I do? What could I do? Um, so I've always really been inspired to create my own business from a very very young age. Wow. And, you know, was there a point in, you know, having all these businesses where you thought, why am I doing this? This is hard work. Let me just get a nine to five. Or did something always drive you? Um, I mean, there's always that point, but you, you know, you, you just think of the bigger picture and think what I think is the hours I put in now, you know, will have payback later down the line. And, you know, you've just got to trust the process. You know, there's always times in every single business where you think, you know, this is you know, a lot. As I say, when, when I had the, the restaurant, I was um, working till about one o'clock in the morning. Then I was getting about 5am for the gym, getting to site at eight, doing eight till five on site, get, going to the gym again in between. And then 6pm um, till till midnight, 1am 1, 1 in the morning in the restaurant. So, I think if you know it, it comes down to how, how much you want it really. Um, if you're willing to sacrifice everything, then you know you're on a good road. Um, but you know everyone's got a different level of of what they want to sacrifice and how much time and effort they want to put into business. Absolutely, and yeah, that that sounds. I mean, at least you got time for the gym. That's important. But well, that's a priority. <laughs> <laughs> I used to um, I used to train five times a day. Um, wow. I used to be a professional tie boxer. So yeah, that taught me quite a lot as well. Taking that experience into business. Wow. You've definitely done a lot and a varied lot of stuff that you've, you've done. So, you know, when it came to property, like, how did you know where to start and how to start? Well, my best friend um, for 16 years, Carl, who's also my business partner, he, uh, he's he been in construction since he was 16. Um, so we used to train together in the gym, funny enough, to where we met. <laughs> And yeah, so, you know, he was doing, he was on site. He worked his way up through the ladder to, from just obviously uh, on the, on the tools, uh, laboring to uh, head foreman of one of the big property developers in the city. Um, so it got to a stage where I was like, well, you know, I've got the business experience. You've got the construction experience. Let's, uh, let's do something together. So we went to auctions. We must have gone to about six or seven different auctions and we always missed out you know oh we won't go for that one you missed out by a couple of thousand pounds and then it got to the stage where we got went to the the, the auction just said you know what we're getting it no matter what it goes for <laughs> it's just fed up and losing out um so we bought our first property in auction in 2015 i think it was yeah 2015 um which is the three bed semi and we bought about seventy-two thousand. um spent about 15k on it um, value is about 120. So we just refinanced and retained on the portfolio. And we've still actually got that one on the portfolio today. So yeah, just kept, kept our equity in, just kept on rolling that into the next scheme, next scheme, next schemes. So we actually touched kind of into an initial niche of bungalows. So I went to see a bungalow, which was offered a, a, a discount because I know that it was a, a motivated seller. Went to see it, uh, put the offer in and then and then I told Carl about it after we'd already offered. So we go around and he's like, what are you doing? Why have we bought this? Um, but we kind of such lucky because it is a pitched roof so we could do the rear dormers. So we added um, basically double the size, the footprint of the, the actual um, bungalow. And then we kind of fell in that area. There's quite a few bungalows coming available with the same style roof. Um, so we were literally adding about 50 square meters on top of the uh, original floor plan. So we were pr- pretty much doubling the size of the units, um, which kind of had the massive uplift in obviously the end values. Mm, interesting. So you kind of went from the single lets, I suppose we call them, or maybe like yeah. mini flips, then into this kind of bungalow conversion slash, you know, another scale up. Yeah, absolutely. When you jumped from the sort of single lets to this bungalow uh, strategy, did it kind of phase either of you or what I'm getting is it was just like, right, we've got it. We'll deal with it. We'll get it done and see what happens. Yeah. I mean, I think that's always been our, our attitude. And I think it's good because obviously Carl comes from the construction side and I come from the business side. So between us, there's no real problem we can't solve. So we have that kind of confidence and, you know, I, I know he's got my back a hundred percent and I've got his back a hundred percent. So nothing really phases us i think we've got the confidence in ourselves and our ability and our skill sets from both sides of the business to to deal with whatever comes our way yeah i think you know having a partner you know especially someone you've known for that long who's in construction is priceless like absolutely 
Uh, it is, yeah. We, we we do have our disagreement, shall we say, because I'm a bit more black and white with the uh, the construction personnel. So sometimes Carl will have a couple of days off and he'll come back and half the team have gone. Um, so we, we do have our disagreements, but, you know. Um, it's, it's- I understand, though. I'm like that as well. I'm just like, why does everyone keep leaving? Um, <laughs> so, like, I, I totally get, like, when that happens and, like, you know, but having someone who, in my opinion, you know, the hardest part is dealing with builders and yeah, their absolutely. whole being. And, you know, that having someone who is an expert and is that experienced in it yeah. is, is just like, wow. It, it's it kind is. of ideal for, I would say most people because yeah. we struggle with that section. Yeah, and absolutely. So, you know, obviously you did this kind of bungalow, which was a kind of step up. Then mm-hmm. I believe you got into like large scale residential conversions. Yeah. So, so again, we went to an auction um, and there was a, a listed building and we'd never even been in this list of buildings before. Carl had some experience in working in a list of buildings section, sector, but um, it was the first one for us and it went to auction and um, we got that for a really good price. I think it was um, ground floor commercial and office space above. Um, so I think we acquired that it was 235k. Um, we spent about 150k on it, turned it into five um, one and two bed apartments and retain the ground floor as commercial space. Um, and I think the end value on that was about 850k. So it worked out pretty well with that. So yeah, that was that was a, a that was our first step into the buildings. And you know, I suppose there's there's two step ups there. One it's the commercial and the top, which is, a, is I suppose a new thing here, and it's a listed building. So, you know, did you have to get planning for that? Was it under permitted development? How did you start that? Yeah, we had to get planning. Um, obviously, I think it would fulfill the permitted development anyway. Um, but we had to get planning because we had some intrusive things with the uh, conservation bellocks, things like that. So um, we did have to obtain planning. I think that took about six months as well. Um, so the council process was really slow with that. So again, that was another learning curve in, in terms of it's not just a, a standard application. Um, we had to get Heritage England out. And obviously, we engaged with the local society. So most listed buildings and um, historic buildings will have some sort of um, residential association or society attached to them in the area who the council do actually ask their opinion of. So we had a meeting on site with the, the society of that local area. And I think it was about a four hour meeting and they were telling us every every single thing about the building since day one. But it was actually quite interesting because the architect for that actually went on to design the lava buildings in, in Liverpool. Um, and it was one of the first telephone exchanges. Um, so yeah, it was quite interesting. But after a couple of hours, you obviously uh, <laughs> have to move on. Get a bit sleepy. Um, yeah. You know, did you know all of this before you bid on it at auction? Um, in all honesty, no. We saw the potential. We thought we'd probably get about three apartments and retain the, the ground floor. But, you know, it was in an area where we just finished the bungalows as well. So we knew the area very well. And we knew how much we could value engineer and increase the value of the, the building. So, you know, we, we anticipated three uh, apartments. I mean, ended up getting five, um, some of them duplexed. So, again, me and Carl are quite good on meeting on site and coming up with ideas in terms of strategies um, to, to, to make the apartments work. Um, arguably better than the architects, which, <laughs> but, um, you know, we are quite good at that, that kind of uh, visual aspect. And did you, you know, did you find that the council and conservation and heritage England, etc., were they quite, uh, positive and really wanting the building to be developed or were they like some, which are just like, Oh, we'd rather it was empty and it looked pretty like, on that one, they, they weren't too keen because it had only just been uh, office space. So I think the, the longer the building has been uh, obsolete, then obviously the more the keen they are to make a use of it. But because this has literally just been the owner had sold it as his office, um, you know, they did want a bit more intrusive questioning on what's going where and what, what walls are going, what we're keeping, what we're retaining. So it was a little bit more difficult than, than some schemes, but um, ultimately, you know, it's got a long-term sustainable use now. So they're getting their, uh, their council tax through it as well. So they're, they're happy. <laughs> of course they are. Yeah. And, you know, for people listening who are, you know, maybe in a similar situation to where you were before, or they're kind of newer, would you advise them to buy uh, listed buildings at auction without pre- prior research? Um, I think it's, it all comes down to how confident you are in, in the team as well. I think 
because we've used our own um, construction team and the same kind of uh, subcontractors from, from day one, we know what we could develop out for. So I think if people were going to, to look at an opportunity um, and they were going to completely give it to a main contractor, et cetera, then you've got to make sure that you, your figures stack up because, you know, main contractors looking at listed buildings will add a premium because once you start ripping things out, obviously there's unforeseen circumstances. Um, so the costs can be, you know, substantially higher than new build. And, you know, speaking of costs on this project, you know, did they specify things like you have to use new timber windows that are sash and this particular shade of roof tile? And were they really specific on those kind of things? Yeah, they were. But luckily enough, um, we didn't have to replace the roof. Um, I think that's place one window. Um, so we were quite lucky in that respect. Mm. And I suppose that's something for people listening to take note of. It's like when you do your refurb calculations for this, just be aware that if they want you to get some obsolete tile and you have to drive to Scotland to get it because there's like 10 left in the world, yeah. you're probably going to have to do it. And Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of things with listed buildings that we've seen. You reinstate the original plasterwork inside and it's got to be done to the, the original spec. Um, so there's, there's so many things that you've got to look out for. And I think one of the main aspects to do is to look at the actual listing on, on Heritage England and just see what actually is listed um, in the building, because sometimes it can be specific internal um, pieces as well. So it's making sure that you know exactly what that you can and can't do before you, uh, you go in for the acquisition. And I think this is what puts people off, you know, listed buildings is because, you know, I mean, there's some obviously some gorgeous buildings and it's incredible to bring these back to life. And, you know, looking at your, your Hoylake development, the black beams kind of in yeah. the kitchen and the stained glass window, I mean, it looks incredible. And yeah. you're never going to get that on a new build. You barely get anything right on a new build. But, um, you know, these features, I think, are important to retain, but it definitely does put people off. However, you have developed somewhat of a niche in doing this. And is this primarily because of your experience and because of your contractors? Yeah, I'd say so. And as I say, we know what we can develop a listed building out for um, because of our contractors. So we're confident in our ability. And I think for us as well, we don't particularly like new build. Um, mm. We like something with character. We like you know, that wow factor. And what we see as well, the, the capital growth on the listed building. So things with stained glass window, we try and retain about 20% of every scheme for our own portfolio. So, you know, we look at the long term and go, well, you know, church is never getting built again. So things yeah. like that are going to be, you know, the capital growth potential is a lot higher than a, than a new build square box room. I think that that's a really good point. Yeah. Then they're, they're not building like this anymore at all. Um, and yeah, that's a good, and it's unique even in a kind of, I suppose it is capital growth, but also in, in a, in a buyer's mind, like their growth or their kind of view on it is going to be higher. Okay. For some people are going to walk in and say, Oh, I hate this. I don't like beams. I don't like, I want a box, but a lot of people are going to say, wow, I will yeah. pay a premium for this because well, it's one of one, you know, or, one of four. Absolutely, absolutely. And on that church place scheme, um, when we first did our due diligence and our, our figures, uh, we got a, an agent to do analysis on it. And I think they came with the GDV of uh, two point, sorry, 1.9. Um, and we ended up with about 2.9 GDV. So we uh, obviously maximised that. We spent it a bit more, shall we say. Um, <laughs> but we saw during construction the, the, the demand in the area and we kind of knew, you know, with the latest interior design trends and things like that to incorporate the original features, we knew what we were going to, we going to produce on it. So we kind of were confident in our figures and, and we knew we could add significant value. And, you know, with, you know, you said you retain 20% of them. So is that your general approach? You keep 20 and you always sell the rest? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, some schemes will differ um, depending on location and obviously what, what we need to release in terms of capital. But generally we go in with the, the offset that we retain about 20% of each scheme. Okay. And then if we look at the, um, what was it, the telephone exchange, the first yeah. one you kind of spoke about, how long did that take from getting the keys to having all the units that you wanted sold? Uh, it was under 12 months. So um, we were pretty quick on the construction there because the apartments weren't that big, to be honest. Mm. Um, and it was all internal. There was no external landscaping, things like that. So um, I'd say it's probably about 11 months. Um, I've had all the sitting tenants in there. So um, we we're quite lucky again with the, the ground floor commercial. Um, they actually moved out the, the current the, the sitting tenants when we purchased the building. Um, and we had a, a cafe that wanted to go in. So again, as you probably know, with with commercial tenants, it's kind of FRI terms. There's mm -hmm. the keys, and who they want to do internally is is up to them. Um, so cafe took that, um, and we you know the, the rent rental income from that was quite was quite good as well. 
and that was a passive income whilst whilst we were doing construction. So that was kind of you know, a nice little uh, bonus. I think that's something that isn't maybe talked about a lot, which is like if you do get a commercial and something else, or even you know a block and some of them are tenanted, that's paying your investor or bridge finance or even paying towards your refurb. So absolutely, I know some people look at sitting tenants like oh, there's, there's obviously more due diligence you need to do, but if it's paying your finance and you've then basically got zero finance costs, yeah, you kind of look at it and think oh, that's pretty good. I might, I might yeah, you know, <laughs> I might be interested in that. Absolutely, especially commercial, as I say, because, you know, they're responsible for everything internal and, mm. and FRI leases. So it's kind of a, you know, there's the keys and, and uh, yeah, we look forward to receiving the rent. And what kind of profit were you looking at on that exchange, on the telephone exchange? So what it was 235 purchase, uh, 150 costs. Um, so it was about 375, 400K. And is that kind of the normal level you look for in your deals? Um, we usually go for 20%, so we'll reverse engineer every every appraisal backwards. Um, so that one was obviously a lot higher than 20%, but um, most deals will look at 20% profit. And, you know, for people who are starting out for their first deal, I think, you know, 20, 25% is the general average figure everyone looks for on cost. Would you advise that for someone's first deal that they look at potentially lower ROI so they can get on the ladder and get experience? Um, I suppose you've got to start somewhere um, and building that, that team and credibility and, and, you know, your own self-knowledge is, is important. So as long as the deal stacks up, I mean, we've looked at some deals and what we do in our, our appraisals is we'll reverse engineer backwards from 20%, but we'll always look at the best case and the worst case. And we actually base our figures on the worst case scenario. So we will undervalue all the, the, the GDV and overprice all the costs. If it still stacks up about you know 10 to 15% on that, then you know it's something that we'll, we'll, we'll look to, to take forward. That makes sense. And I think, yeah, you've got to start somewhere is, is a kind of nice way of, of summarizing it perhaps. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with your niche, I suppose, being these listed kind of historic buildings, do you find that there's more or less competition within this kind of area? I think there's less competition, um, which is is great for us. Um, I think one of the the unique aspects as well that, that we actually you know, we want to go out and deliver schemes. So we get a lot of the churches coming direct to us for disposals now, which is mm-hmm. which is great. Yeah. So they don't actually go to market um, because they know that we're not the kind of developers to just sit in land bank. We actually want to develop out. So for them, you know, it ticks all their boxes in terms of they've got someone who they know they can deliver and will actually uh, facilitate the delivery. I mean, that's awesome. You know, your vendor coming straight to you, it just makes life so much easier. And again, there's a good point there about you actually develop it out. Now, obviously some people don't, they get it, they get planning, you know, they discharge conditions, whatever, they chuck it in auction, fine. But I think I'm hearing this more often that certain vendors like this actually like you to to build it out because they... The building means something to them, I suppose. And yeah, absolutely. And I think with with listed buildings and dealing directly with churches, there's so many hurdles that they have to jump through, and charities, commissions, and they have to dispose of assets in a certain way. So mm. one of the uh, assets which we are just about to obtain planning on that has been in legals direct with the church for two and a half years. So what? Two and a half years. Two and a half years, mate. Yeah. So what, uh, why? Again, there's just so many hurdles. Everyone wants to put the the two pence into the uh, option and the contracts. And so we, when we were finishing Church Place, we anticipated to jump straight onto this next scheme. Um, and yeah, it was a, a long, long, long process. And then the, the contracts had to go back and forward that many times. Just before exchange, the, the party wall fell down. So we had to rewrite the contracts for them to rebuild that before we complete. Uh, just, yeah, anything that could have come up, come up in that contract. But yeah, it was a, a very long process. But it's, it, it's part of their processes as well. Well, they've got to go out to the local community. They've got to go to charities commission. They've got to go to the diocese for disposal. So there is a long, long process dealing direct with uh, with with churches. Yeah, I mean, wow. I've heard of some long legals, but that is that is something. I mean, and it could fall out of bed at any point along that, right? Yeah, it could do. Yeah, but to be honest, the the, the reason we stayed in, like someone said to us, so you two and a half years in in, le- in the legal process with someone, we just you know you anyone would just go, what are you doing? But the price we're actually acquiring this for, um, it, it'd be stupid not to stay in legals. Um, so mm. I think we we look at the the end strategy and go, okay. But again, that's one of the things that people don't see. You know, the things we're working on today, uh, what are going to come to fruition in two three years down the line? You know, we've got several projects we're working with different councils towards which, you know, they're not going to be seen for two or three years. So 
you know, you have to look at the long term as well and think, you know, what am I doing today to make sure that the build it, the, the business is growing in the next few years? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think naturally, maybe a society, we want to see your end value, the profit, the goals, all this stuff. But then when you say, well, it took us two and a half bloody years, and then it took us another year to build or whatever. I think people don't really want to hear that, right? Like, no, absolutely. Everyone wants the, the quick flip, don't they? And the 40k out or 50k out and done. It's like, oh. Exactly. But then, you know, when you look at the profit you can make and actually, you know, the passion aspect, the, the buildings you're working on, you kind of look at it and say, well, actually, yeah, you know, more money, more problems, like bigger money, bigger problems. And absolutely. this is kind of what I suppose people have to sign up for if they want to operate at this level like you can't necessarily be in and out like you can with just a you know a flip and you know what three six months whatever boom you're out so just for people listening actually listen you know when phil says it took two and a half years like just imagine two and a half years you're like (laughs) you're like why have we not got the keys imagine dealing with the solicitor the same solicitor for two and a half years oh man you need to be best friends or like the worst of enemies it's a good job it was a church because i think i'm an angel now (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think you need that church to pray for the next one to, to not be that long. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, when you are, you know, building these out, you know, because there's two of you. So obviously Carl takes the construction element, you take the kind of business and operations. Yeah. You know, do you find that this cut, you know, for people who are, you know, looking at JVs, that this split, I suppose, down the middle with you two works really well and neither of you have to necessarily get involved in each other's part? Yeah, it does. But I think that's based on our friendship and our trust level as well. Um, he's like a brother to me. So, you know, I know no matter what, he's going to handle his side of the business and he knows no matter what I handle mine. But we do have crossovers and we, we do pretty much daily meetings on in terms of what's going on in each other's sector. And well, I'll go to site two, three times a week um, just to make sure that, you know, everything's there. And it, it's good for obviously the construction staff to see both of us there, not just one of us. Because mm. um, it can be a bit of a them versus us situation if they think that I just sit in the office, you know, with a playing uh, playing some cards or something. But it's <laughs> it's good for them to see that. And, and I think the way we started as well, when we first got our, our first couple of properties, I literally couldn't hold a screwdriver. Um, <laughs> although I had all, all the experience in business. So I set out and I said to Carl, I said, look, I'll jump on site for a couple of years. And literally I was filling skips. And I was like, I don't care. There's no ego coming with this. I want to learn everything. And I want to make sure that I know every aspect of the business. And, you know, the construction side is a big part of our business. So I wanted to expand my knowledge with that side of it as well. So I literally just jumped on site and was, you know, learned everything from the ground up. I love that. And I think it, you know, I've done that before and it, it helps so much because then when, obviously you've got car managing it, but if for people who don't have that, you know, it helps because if, if a tradesman says something to you, you can say, hmm, don't think that's how it's done or like. Yeah, hundred percent. And you, you know what it's like if, if, if I turn up and I'm in a suit and Carl's obviously on site with them, they think that I haven't got a clue and they'll try and you know, pull every trick in the book. And we call it the nursery on site because it's like dealing with kid, kids nonstop. But you just got to know obviously what everyone's trying to get away with. But if you've got that knowledge to to know that, you know, what's right and what is wrong and what they should be doing, what shouldn't be doing, then, um, you know, it's a, it's a good, good place to start. It is. I mean, it is a nursery and it is, like you said, they're like, you know how much can they get away with and I th- absolutely i think frankly it's pathetic that this whole industry is like this because yeah we accept it but it's like hold on we're all adults it's Why? just a mindset i think i think yeah. they they just they just think oh you're the director you know you're you're but they don't see the side of it the risk and the sleepless nights and, and what you actually put towards the business they just think oh you know it doesn't matter for him we'll just try and rob them blind and you think well at the end of the day you know if we you know, if we can't succeed in the scheme, then there's no more work for for them. So um, sometimes they just need to yeah, wake up and, and smell the roses. But um, yeah, we are, we have some uh, some funny uh, conversations on site, shall we say? <laughs> it, you know, it definitely is. We had we had one um, on the, the church place scheme. This is a typical example. So they were uh, whizzing out a wall. It was right by the stained glass. Um, bearing in mind that there was no windows in each side of the room. And he was whizzing out another wall internally. And he decided to kick the stained glass window through to let more dust out and day on site. Um, but it cost what? us about, yeah, it cost us about £4,000 to get replaced. I mean, wow. Yeah. That, I mean, like I've heard some stupid stuff, but that guy is an absolute moron. <laughs> that was, the, yeah, that was the, the PC word that we called him. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, yeah, you know, it, it's incredible though. And it's also good to hear though, that because the level you're operating at and the fact that, you know, one half of your business is, you know, 
someone in construction to hear that you still have these problems and challenges it's not good but it's good to hear because yeah. it, it kind of says well bloody hell you know what i mean like we all have it like it's non-stop and at every level and absolutely every, every single level there's just you know, more problems to deal with but you just got to make sure that, that you know the problems are going to occur and, and how to deal with them and have the confidence in yourself to know that no matter what occurs then it'll be dealt with Um we tend to put at the end of every scheme as well we'll make a list um, of every learning and what went wrong and try and take that into the next scheme and say well this is what went wrong on that scheme is there anything we can learn from and make sure that doesn't happen again and just ultimately make that that list shorter and shorter every single scheme I think that that's really important. And again, it's something that all of you listeners listening right now, you're going to hear this and say, oh, that's a really good idea, right? We're all going to say that. But how many of us are actually going to do that? Because like writing them down, analyzing them, going through them exactly like you said, say, what could we have done better? What will we do better? Mm, That supplier, okay, maybe let's change next time. All of these things mean that the next property you get, you'll save money, you'll save time, you'll make more money. It's fact. Like, if you do that one exercise, everyone listening after your next refurb, I can guarantee you those three things will happen without a doubt. I don't need to see you or know you. Like it's a fact. So I love that kind of self feedback loop. Um, yeah. After every deal. Yeah, I think we're we're kind of perfectionists as well. We want to make sure that we're striving forward all the time and learning from everything and and, and just creating a better um you know and end product for for the business um so you know we don't bring ego to the table yeah you know, we're happy to put our hands up and say yeah that was a massive error or um what could we do differently next time or should we have done this should we have done that so i think learning from everything is is you know looking at yourself and looking at the business and seeing where the weaknesses are and trying to establish what you can do to, to strengthen everything every aspect of the business absolutely and uh you know, I'm looking. I'm just looking at Church Place and these pictures. I just love the the stained glass and the beams and everything. It's just so. It's just got so much character. Yeah. When you were developing this, this was this was a fair fair bit bigger than the telephone exchange, right? Yes, yeah, so this was 17 units. Um, and telephone exchange was five uh, residential and one and uh, one commercial. And this this came like sort of next in line after the exchange. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Um, so we got offered this um, by a couple of estate agent contacts. It had been bought in auction and someone had uh, bought it, obtained planning for 18 one bedroom units. So um, we acquired it, but then we sat down and thought, you know, that's not a very good mix of uh, <laughs> of, uh, of units. So we looked at it and we actually, when we originally purchased it, there was a church hall to the rear. So we looked at it and it was structurally sound. So we said, well, why don't we just you know, cut that up into to four houses and keep the original church? So decrease the mass of units. Um, but obviously timescales would be a lot quicker for us to do. And the GDV was relatively the same. So we went back into planning um, to retain the church hall, but the planning officers just didn't want it there. So, um, which was strange. So we had to uh, de- demolish the church hall and go back to the original scheme. But then there were so many things that came up in that scheme. So for instance, the original architect messed up the ceiling heights. Um, of the original church so had a, a day on site and Carl was like we've got a bit of a big problem here I was like go on and he's like well we can't get to the top floor because the arches are in the wrong place because the, uh, the the head height you can't walk through to the next room so we're like okay so we've just lost two apartments that's not a good sign wow um yeah so you can imagine that day but again we sat down and went through it and basically it was on the outriggers of the church so we came through the strategy and said, well, let's duplex the ones below and make them two bedrooms on the outriggers. So yeah, there's always a solution to the problems. Um, and we had to go back through planning again to do amendments. And then we had a buyer. So the top floor of the, the new build section of Church Place was meant to be two units. We had a, a buyer from Switzerland come over and say, oh, I want to buy two units, but one is one big unit. So can you change planning? And we were like, yeah, no problems. Um, so we, we took a small deposit from them um, and then we had to change planning, had to change the whole roof structure, um, yeah, long old process. And then just before the Christmas, they pulled out due to Brexit. We were like, oh, that's great. So we just changed, but we changed all the mains by then. So we only had 17 mains coming in, so we couldn't actually put it back. So I was like, oh my God. So yeah, that was uh, another exciting experience. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's one of them. It's a massive apartment now and we retain that one as well so it looks good in the end yeah i think exciting is definitely one way to put it <laughs> <laughs> trying to be as politically correct yeah. as i can on this podcast <laughs> i think given i mean 
an architect i mean i mean yeah, they have insurances for a reason so you know yeah. there's, there's sort of come back for this but like it's just crazy when you hire professionals yeah. look with builders you expect them to mess almost everything up but with other professionals you kind of think come on now you know yeah like, well the, the problem was he wasn't our architect because whoever purchased the church before us had obtained planning with him uh, so then we said to him well we'll continue using you and then pretty quickly we realized that <laughs> He wasn't the guy to take this forward. Um, Measuring a ceiling height doesn't take much skill. You put the little laser, you just like... Well, I can only imagine he had a, a wind-out tape measure or something. <laughs> he got it massive, massively wrong. But he just couldn't reach the top and said, oh, just, just, we'll just call it this number. It's fine. Yeah, just absolutely. Well, maybe, I don't know whether his client just said to him, look, just, just get him what you can and I'm not going to build it out anyway. So um, just, yeah. just do what you can, which is what I, I feel happened. But ultimately, you know, you've got to make sure you do due diligence on that and, you know, you anticipate that the architect's got things right. But mm. You've also got to sit back and think, you know, what what can we do if, if things go wrong? And that was a decision we had to make pretty quickly. Um, but then we had to go to appeal on that as well. So we, because we were changing it from one bedroom unit to two bedroom units, mm. the locals didn't really like the uh, extra density. So um, went through planning, had to go to appeal, um, had to get the councillors round and engage with them and just say, look, we're doing this because we can't access that part of the building unless we duplex them up. So to create that other space is, is another bedroom. So it'd be stupid not to, otherwise it's just going to be a dark uh, dark room up there. So got it through on, on the, uh, the the planning uh, appeal and everything went okay. I mean, you know, these are only a handful of, I suppose, kind of challenges in a project like this. And it's, it's stressful to even hear about them, you know? So I think a lot of people want to do bigger projects because of course it brings more money. But then I think everyone listening, you have to take a look at what you actually want to do. Like, yeah. you know, personally me, am I interested in doing something like this? No. I mean, it looks mm-hmm. gorgeous, but I'm just, I'm just not interested in it. So I won't ever yeah. do it. Um, And yeah, I'll make less money in this particular avenue, but it's what I want to do. So I think everyone listening, you know, despite hearing these challenges and hearing obviously the positivity that comes from it, it's important to yeah relate it to you and your own kind of experience and journey. And, you know, same thing with this. Was it 20% kept and you sold the rest of them? Yeah. So we kept four units on that one um, and sold the rest. Um, so we kept the whole top floor. So penthouse. Yeah. Yeah. We tend to pick the, the best ones really. <laughs> um, so we, we kept them and, and went them out. So I think we uh, generate about, I think it's about four and a half thousand per, uh, per calendar month from those four units. Okay. Um, so yeah, the, again on that, we, we obviously go into every scheme and, and try and estimate what we'd, we'd achieve in rental values. And I think, um, even the, the lender on that one, they, they anticipated that the top floor units we get about 750, 795 per calendar month and we get, uh, 1100 on one and 1600 on the other. So far surpassed the, uh, valuation. What a surprise, a, a valuer being wrong. Wow. That's new. Never heard that in property. Oh, let's not get started on valuers. <laughs> Um, and did they sell like really quickly? How was the sales process? Yeah, they did. To be fair, um, we had quite a few fall throughs, um, which was rather frustrating. But they, yeah, they, they pretty much all all sold them. We we kind of judged the demand because we did a pre release um, and started marketing them off plan. Mm. Um, and we kind of priced them at the original prices, and then pretty soon I just said, you know, let's pull these because they were they were literally going like hotcakes. So we pulled them and, and reevaluated the the end values. Um, and yeah, that's that's when we uh, achieved a, a bigger GDP. And that's a really good um, kind of strategy or approach. There is to do the off plan, and obviously you can get really good CGIs and staging and all that done these days. Um, and obviously with a good agent, you know, it makes life easier. But to do that pre sale, get an idea of the prices. And then mm-hmm. if you need to go back to the drawing board, because if you didn't do that and you went on your original prices, you would have been like, ah, crap. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's good as well because you know, release a couple of units and we were taking people around the site, obviously hard hats and, and all PPE. Um, and they could see the, what was going to be there, the end result. So we released a couple and because they went so quickly and we were having bidding wars on them, it was like, well, okay, <laughs> we'll <laughs> let's hold the rest back and uh, put the prices to, to match the, uh, the market. Absolutely. That that makes so much sense. And, you know, as the developers and as the owners, I suppose it's on us to, obviously the agents are going to help, but it's on us to do that kind of level of research and to be smart like that. Um, yeah, definitely. And I think that that's one of the main things we take away as well is that the agents just want the sale. So they mm. don't really care what, what you get for the properties. So we actually changed agents during the whole uh, process of selling because um, they lost a few of their staff and uh, the people who were actually facilitating sales weren't really meeting our, our expectations, shall we say. Wow. Um, so we changed agents because for us, we say, you know, if it's safe, 
with 3 million GDV, we're giving them 1%. That's 30K. So I could build someone, you know, a sales office on site and hire someone full time to do the job. So mm. you've got to provide me with a better service than something that we could provide ourselves. And if you're not, and you don't know the site inside out like we do, then, you know, why are we paying you? I agree. I mean, you know, for one agent to have this many units, all brand new, all done to a high spec in their historical building, like, mm-hmm. I mean, they really got to pull their socks up and like kind of go the extra mile because, I mean, you're, you're giving them a lot of money and you're yeah. kind of making their life easier because they're such nice apartments. Yeah, absolutely. There were people, they were taking people around and you know, we could hear the questions being asked by potential um, buyers and they didn't have a clue. And then they come to us and ask them, we're like, we can't be doing this. So we changed agents um, and that was quite successful. But yeah, we've got that relationship back with the, the original agent. Now they've had the restructure internally with their offices. So yeah, we're all good now. You have to do that though, right? If, if people aren't performing. Absolutely. It's, it's black and white at the end of the day. You've got to, you know, time is money, especially on the developments. And if, you know, if you're marketing them and they've been on the market for, for a certain amount of time and they haven't sold, then they come to you and say, well, you know, should we reduce the price? And I say, well, you've got to look at that and go, why should I reduce my price? Why don't you increase your marketing? <laughs> So it's 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 really fair, isn't it? It's like oh, so I take a, a hit, a thirty k hit, or forty fifty k hit across the scheme. But what are you taking? No hit. So you know where's the incentive for you? Um. So mm-hmm. yeah, you just got to to weigh up that with the agents, and ultimately, if they're not performing, just remember they're working for you to sell the the product. So if they're not doing that, then you know there is other agents out there with they'll come with the air. Uh, and I think when there's a, a regional agent as well, which is quite competitive, if they get a sniff that there's an opportunity to take off their competitor. <laughs> you know they'll go all guns blazing for you which really went well for us actually yeah it, it is a good it is quite nice and i think their ego they love it right oh yeah in fact Absolutely. i took it off them it's more and all that so yeah i can i can see that working really well and you know for people listening like don't be afraid to cut anyone in your team Absolutely. in your life like if, if it's not if it's not your energy they're not performing then like like phil said it's black and white it's just done end of and uh phil i'm gonna read out the awards here that your company has won so i might take a deep breath there's quite a few um insider residential property awards 2021 shortlisted the property investor awards property development of the year winner 2020 the property investor awards property investor award winner 2020 the Wirral life awards silver 2019 and the insider property awards liverpool city region 2020 shortlisted there's a lot happening here um what do you think is the reason or what makes Wintermelia so different or unique that you're kind of collecting these accolades? Um, I think not only do we go out and, and try and change the whole um, listed building sector, but what we're trying to do is create something which resembles our brand as well. So we really don't corner us. We make sure that everything we do resembles exactly what we want. And because we retain the uh, the amount of units in each scheme that, that we do, it's a kind of a comfort for, for buyers. They think, well, if the developer's buying them, then I know they haven't cut any corners and know everything's on the top, top spec. And we kind of keep on top of all the latest interior design and, and, and trends like that and try and incorporate them in every single scheme. Um, so everything we do is on trend, but it's incorporating the, the original features throughout as well. Mm, yeah I, I like that and i think these things they do get noticed because mm-hmm. most developers most investors just do especially new build big big developers they just do boring standard no character you know like i know you went for the concrete effect kitchens which is different you got a stone worktop you got bosch appliances like you know and i saw some of the i don't know what the technical name is but kind of little columns inside some of the rooms are kept and yeah. the herringbone floor little things like that i think show everyone including investors you know because everyone listening we, we all want investors we all want people to fund our deals it shows them that you do something different so you know it, it's great to be recognized i suppose in an industry like that absolutely what is next for winter media developments so we've actually got two churches believe it or not um so the one that was two and a half years in legals that's probably the the next one that should uh, obtain successful planning touching wood in about two weeks time um so that one is a gdv about three million um and then we've got another listed building another church which is about two miles away from that one um which we haven't actually announced yet um which is about a uh, 4.5 million gdv so yeah pretty busy at the moment we're just obviously back end we're just establishing the the, the correct scheme for the the latest church that we haven't put planning in for yet um, and working with the local uh, authority on the the current one 
Love it. And another thing that you've kind of been working on is a prop tech startup called Breeze Move. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So again, from, you know, I kind of take everything as, a, as an experience. And if something's not working for me, then I set out to change it. Um, so back in 2017, we were buying a house, which is going through probate. I rang our solicitor at the time and said, you know, what's what's the situation? And she's like, oh, we've got a three week clause, which means if we don't hear anything for the other side uh, for three weeks, then we contact them. And I was just like, are you joking me? Like I can get my shopping delivered in half an hour. I can buy a car same day. Why have you got this? It's like a year down the line in the transaction. I just couldn't believe it. So I was like, you know, there's got to be a solution to, to speed this up or, or give everyone transparency of the transaction. So I looked around for a solution and, and couldn't really find one. And I thought, you know what? I created like this model of breeze move in, in, in my own little mind. <laughs> and then a couple of weeks later, literally, um, coincidentally, Sajid Javid, who is the community secretary at the time, he came on the radio and said the government looking to speed up the transaction through technology and transparency. And I was like, I've literally just thought of something to do that. So I'm ever the one to go straight to the top. So I found Sajid's email online and emailed him directly. And then uh, two weeks later, they, they said, uh, can you come down to the home office and discuss with us? And I was like, oh, wow, hmm. some scouse kid just telling the government how to, to op- operate. Um, so I went down to MHCLG in the home office at the end of 2017. And they were like, look, you know, this is exactly what we want implemented, but we can't really back you because you're a private firm. Go and speak to the big boys. So contacted Countrywide, um, who were obviously the big boys at the time, and went down to their head office, started 2018, um, got to commercial negotiations with them. Then they had the huge restructure, back to basics. Um, so came out to commercials with them in mid-2018. So after that, we decided to, to build a platform ourselves. And um, we've got a couple of really high-profile non-exec directors on board. From Rightmove, right? Yes, the ex-commercial director of Rightmove, Jason. Um, he took Rightmove from startup to IPO. So he's great, uh, great guy to have on board. And he's just a really, really good guy as well. Um, ultimately, what we're trying to do is just provide consumers with a better moving experience. So we we literally aligned the estate agent, the buyer, the seller, and both party solicitors in one centralized digital platform. So everyone knows exactly where the sales process is up to, exactly who's responsible for the next stage. And if the solicitors on the platform aren't acting in an efficient manner, we get them off. So ultimately, everyone knows who's responsible, where it's at, and no excuses. I like that. If they're not, if the solicitors aren't moving quickly enough, you get rid of them. I wish we could do that in life for solicitors who don't move quickly. Um, this is a great idea. Yeah, it's it's to be honest, we've made it a no-brainer as well. We give it as a completely free tool for estate agents because they're our route to market. So the way we do it is we go to estate agents, give it to their clients for free as well. So the only people who pay um, is solicitors, and that's on completion. Um, and we actually pay the estate agents to use the the platform. So for estate agents, obviously, reduce completion times, reduce fall through rates, give consumers transparency. So you don't have as many calls coming to them. They don't have to call solicitors for updates. It's all digitally done live. Um, and then we pay them to use it. So literally it's a bit of a no-brainer. And from the consumer's perspective, you know, it's completely free at all times. They don't pay anything to use it. And uh, they get 24-7 live updates as where the process is up to. Wow. I mean, this is something that we need. It's not something like we, we need it because there's so much opacity in this process. And, yeah. you know, you just the other side just doesn't reply you can't if i don't have i mean i do like my solicitors but if i don't have to talk to anyone i can just go online and say oh okay that search is back for the for the buyers we're here we're here cool i'm happy you absolutely know? 10 phone calls later hey Ted, the searches come back and blah 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 i don't want to chat to you um, yeah absolutely well it's the, the sales progressors they, they'll ring you with an update you knew two weeks ago and yeah. like, well, i say to the estate agents you know how much do you pay a sales progressor and you've got 10 in your team you know by using the platform, we can eradicate 25% of them. You, you're always going to have a section of people who need the handheld throughout the transaction. Mm-hmm. If people are getting top-line information, it reduces the incoming calls. You don't have to speak to your solicitor. You don't have to speak to your estate agent because you know exactly where the process is up to. And I think ultimately we, we've we come at this from a consumer's perspective, but the whole transaction is never really geared towards the consumer. It's kind of we're the ones paying the fees to the estate agent or the solicitor. But we don't know where it's up to. I had my solicitor's blaming your solicitor, your solicitor's blaming my solicitor. And it's like, well, yeah. someone's lying. So let's <laughs> yeah. just give accountability and like say, you know, I know exactly where it's up to. It's literally a dance of paperwork. Who can shuffle their paperwork the fastest and pretend they're doing something? Exactly, um, exactly. Yeah, I really like the website as well. And again, I won't list them. I don't think I've got enough breath, but you've got more awards here, more shortlisting. <laughs> um, but you've got some big, you know, industry partners. You've got the CLC for, and you've got Ricks as a tech partner. Um, yeah. You know, so this, this, I'm sure it's getting there, especially with the right move dude on as well. Like, 
this should be used everywhere, you know, something like this or this should be used because it, like you just said that it is a no brainer. Like there is no negative to this and it's, yeah, and it stops the other side solicitors getting calls. It just, it just makes life easier. And also I think there's, there's some liability, which I know solicitors won't like because we can look at it and say, well, the other side haven't done X, Y, Z. So, you know, to be honest, it, we thought, so when we set out with it, with the launch, we thought, oh, solicitors are going to absolutely hate this because it shows ultimately how efficient or inefficient they are. Yeah. But the solicitors are actually the easiest people to get to use it. Oh, wow. Which is crazy because we, we thought the state agents will just lap it up because it's free and they get paid to use it and it reduces the calls, et cetera, et cetera. But they're actually the hardest people to convince. And you're like, hang on a minute, <laughs> we're paying you. <laughs> we're giving it as a free tool for you, for your clients. And, you know, ultimately... Get, giving you another turn on your pipeline. If we can reduce your completion times, then what's that value to you? But the solicitors are just like, yeah, yeah, where do we sign on? I mean, well, perhaps solicitors are crying out for some technological innovation because their sector yeah. is, you know, stuck in the eighties. So absolutely, I think I think that's what's happened. Obviously, with, we sped our launch up because of the pandemic, and we've been working on this as I say since two thousand seventeen. So we saw the opportunity, and obviously, when the pandemic hit, you know, it, it highlighted that the industry is just not set up for digitalization. <laughs> um, but obviously, land registers now accepting digital signatures. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole big, industry yeah. huge so the whole industry is going towards digitalization so for us it's perfect timing really um but it's just convincing the uh this is the estate agents to adopt but ultimately it's the consumer that benefits the most so um we've got some quite clever marketing tactics to go to the estate agents and make sure that they can see that their competitors are using etc cetera, etc cetera, and, and the quantifiable metrics and reducing completion times and fall through rates and things like that so we've got so many things as well on, on the roadmap to add in to uh, ultimately reduce the, the completion times even further but it's kind of first step but we're um, hopefully about to close our first capital raise as well on that so that's uh, wow. going to drive us further forward but we uh, yeah it's all good amazing i love it it's it's exciting and i just love this website the house the graphics everything it's just so like it's fit for what it is like it's just yeah this is going to be big you know it man i can see this (laughs) it has to be because we need this so badly well that's it i think a lot of like when people say prop tech everyone wants to be people do things out of ego they they want to be a prop tech startup they want to be you know (laughs) this 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 but ultimately it's not really solving a problem Whereas this, because we've come up the experience from buying and selling so many times and seeing the pitfalls, we come out from the consumer's perspective and go, okay, well, let's make this a, a better moving experience for the consumer. You know, if everyone used this, then everyone would see exactly where everything's up to. Everyone would be accountable of every single transaction. So that's ultimately where we want to get to. I love it. And I will put a link to Breeze Move in the show notes as well, along with your website, etc. Phil, thank you so much for coming on the Tetris podcast. This has been great. Uh, everyone, please do check out uh, Phil's website. You'll see some really nice designs on it and some inspiration for historical buildings. Uh, and Phil, thank you. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. No problem, Sedge. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.